0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis
1: and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the 2022 Joseph Story Distinguished Lecture featuring Justice Samuel A. Alito, Please welcome John Malcolm, Vice President of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government. Thank you. Well, good evening. Uh, I want to welcome you to the Heritage Foundation and to the Joseph Story Distinguished Lecture. So my name is John Malcolm. I'm the Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional Government, and also the Director of the Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. And I'm delighted that Edwin Meese is here this evening. So this lecture... (laughs) This lecture has been named in honor of one of our country's most distinguished jurists and legal scholars, a man who, in fact, distinguished himself in many different ways. Joseph Story was involved in politics and civic activities in his native state of Massachusetts. After several years in private practice, he served in the Massachusetts State Legislature, and for part of that time, he was Speaker of the House, and then in the United States Congress. Pretty remarkable when you consider that he did all of that before he was confirmed as an Associate Justice on the Supreme Court at the ripe old age of 32, the youngest justice in our nation's history. In addition to serving with distinction on the High Court for 33 years, Story was instrumental in establishing the Harvard Law School and served as its Dane Professor of Law. Story was also an accomplished writer whose articles and books were praised on both sides of the Atlantic. His most famous work was, of course, his Commentaries on the Constitution, which demonstrated his commitment to faithfully interpreting the Constitution as it was understood by those who wrote it and ratified it. The influence of Story's Commentaries continues to be felt today among the judiciary and constitutional scholars, and thank heaven for that. We are fortunate indeed to have Justice Samuel Alito as this year's Story Lecturer Justice Alito has served as a federal judge for 32 years, half of them on the Supreme Court. Over the course of his judicial career, Justice Alito has demonstrated a keen intellect and an allegiance to the Constitution. He has also exhibited courage by never hesitating to state what the law is, not what he would like it to be, even when doing so places him in the center of the storm. And he has also exhibited a quality that is exceedingly rare in this town, humility. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Justice Samuel Alito. (laughs) So it's such a pleasure to have you here this evening uh, Justice Alito Let, let's begin oh, what is it that first piqued your interest in the Constitution and in
0: being a lawyer uh, probably a couple of things Boy, that's going way back but uh, in high school I was really interested in American history and of course you can't understand American history without understanding quite a bit about the Constitution I was uh, Uh, Very interested in debating in high school, and I figured that was sort of what lawyers do. And one year, uh, the national debate topic was on the exclusionary rule or something like that. So that required us to assemble arguments on both sides of the question of whether it's required by the Constitution or whether it was appropriate for the Supreme Court to enforce it. And uh, I think I was also influenced by my father's work. He was not a lawyer, but he was in charge of research for the New Jersey legislature. So we often, that, that involved uh, helping legislators, both Republicans and Democrats, to write legislation. So we talked about that. And he also got involved in redistricting matters as well. Well, that was, yeah, his major project during the 1980s, helping the state come into compliance with Reynolds versus Sims. So one of my memories from high school was lying in bed and listening to this clanking of the mechanical adding machine that he was using (laughs) down in the kitchen to draw maps. The technology today is a lot different, but he said even back then that just with the tools that were available to him, he could draw uh, maps to achieve just with very little population deviation and respecting Jurisdictional lines to achieve pretty much whatever end the member who asked him to prepare the map wanted. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> much like today. <laughs> so,
1: after graduating from high school, you went to Princeton, which was very near your home uh, in Trenton. You once stated that while you were at Princeton, you saw some, and this is a quote, very privileged people behaving irresponsibly. And I couldn't help making a contrast between some of the worst of what I saw on the campus and the good sense and decency of some of the people back in my own community. Can you explain what you meant by that and sort of how it formed your thinking?
0: (laughs) Well, the specific thing I was thinking about were um, aspects of the anti-war movement. Um, I entered college in the fall of 1968, a long time ago. But that was at the height of the war in Vietnam. And uh, about two-thirds or more of the students in my high school class didn't go to college, so many of the boys were drafted and they were sent off to fight in in Vietnam or serve in the military someplace else. Um, And they had no choice and they did what they thought was their patriotic duty. Uh, The students at Princeton were triply privileged. We were privileged to be in college. We were privileged to attend a college with Princeton's resources. And we had draft deferments, so there was no risk that we were going to be sent off to the jungles of Vietnam as long as we were in college. There were reasonable grounds to oppose what the U.S. did in Vietnam for strategic and policy reasons. And certainly, in retrospect, that's even clearer than it was at the time. I couldn't see any justification for vilifying ordinary soldiers like my high school classmates. Uh, I couldn't see any justification for some of the really wild claims that were being made about the reasons why the United States was in Vietnam. And I was really put off by the message that I thought some of my classmates were sending and what the university finally sent by throwing ROTC units off campus. What was the meaning of that? Were they saying that the United States doesn't need a military? And that would be absurd. Or were they saying, yeah, the United States needs a military, but we're really too good for that. And let, it, let the training of officers be done by the state universities and by other lesser places. And I, I, I didn't like that kind of elitism. So I guess this is going to feed, feed into that, because
1: after graduating Princeton, you then went to Yale Law School. And I would hasten to add that, uh, that Clarence Thomas and John Bolton were, were classmates of yours. Um, but another classmate and a friend of yours was quoted as saying the following, a lot of us were hippies, love children, political dissenters, and draft dodgers. So why did you choose Yale Law School, and what was that experience? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, just as an aside, the, the Clarence Thomas of those days was different in appearance. <laughs> I, I wish I hadn't gotten to know him better at that time. But what I remember about him was Clarence standing in the courtyard uh, wearing dungarees and no shirt. And at that time, he, had done, he did a lot of lifting. so <laughs> He was a powerful figure. Just going like this with a football, and the football would sail all the way across the, the courtyard. So he was a formidable, he was a formidable presence. Of course, now he's a formidable presence in a different way. So <laughs> wh- why did I why did I go to Yale? Um, size was important to me. Uh, it was a lot smaller than Harvard. I thought I'd be less of a number. Reports from people I knew who went to the two places, people at Yale were a whole lot happier than friends I knew at Harvard who you know, seemed to vary from feeling down to the border of clinical depression. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my more respectable reason for going was that I I was really hoping to take some constitutional law uh, classes from uh, Professor Alexander Bickel, whose work I had read. And I I was very impressed with him. You weren't able to do that, though, were you? No, I wasn't. Uh, He got sick. Just after I got there, and so I don't think he ever taught any more classes. Yeah.
1: Well, you have suggested that if one wants to learn constitutional law, there would probably be a pretty good place to start by actually reading the document. I'm curious, did you learn any constitutional <laughs> law at Yale?
0: Well, you know, reading the document is actually a very radical idea. <laughs> <laughs> why, would, why would anybody actually do that? Uh, unfortunately, the answer to the question of whether I learned constitutional law at Yale is basically no. Um, as I mentioned, uh, I, uh, Professor Bickel uh, got sick and didn't teach anymore. And then there was my con law class. Uh, all of the students in the first semester were required to take two sub, uh, four subjects, uh, contracts towards civil procedure and constitutional law. Three of the classes for each student were taught in big groups big sessions. But for each, for each of us, one of, the, one of those courses was taught in a small group with maybe 10, 10, 12 students. And the point of that was we were supposed to learn the subject as well as legal writing. So I looked at my course assignment, and I saw I had been assigned to a small group in constitutional law taught by Charles Reich. Now, the name probably doesn't mean anything to people now but to, you know, uh, a short bio. In the, in the 60s, he had really been a leading progressive constitutional scholar. He wrote an article called The New Property, which was thought to have been influential in Goldberg versus Kelly. But by the time I, by the time, uh, I got to, uh, to Yale, he had lost interest in law. He had written, he was sort of swept up by the counterculture he wrote a book called The Greening of America, which was very popular. It was, uh, I think it was a bestseller. It was serialized in The New Yorker. He appeared on The Dick Cavett Show, if I remember correctly. Anybody here old enough to remember The Dick Cavett Show? (laughs) Uh, And he had no interest in in teaching law. So I went to the the dean of students, and I asked to be transferred. Uh, No, never in the history of Yale Law School has anybody been transferred. So there I was, I was stuck, and I went to the class. By the way, the, the big section of con law was taught by somebody who was just switching over from antitrust to, moving from antitrust to constitutional law, and that was Robert Bork, who was not very well known at the time. But he left too, he left to become Solicitor General. So I couldn't take any courses from him. So I'm there with, with Charles Reich. And he begins by going around the room and asking each student, Why did you go to law school? And the student would give, No, it's a bad answer. <laughs> uh, and he, this went on for weeks. He had debated each of us about why we went to law school to try to convince us that we shouldn't be there. And the the moral was there are no livable lives to be lived in the law. Then he moved on. When he was finished with this, he got a volume of the, uh, the of the uh, history of the Kravath law firm where he had been a young associate, and he would open it up to a particular partner and tell us a story about the partner. So one one partner was terribly irascible, he would call young associates into the office, and he would berate them, and he would yell, and he would get red in the face, and he would break pencils. What happened to him? He had a stroke and died at his desk. <laughs> then there was another sad man who had been passed over for partner, uh, but they kept him on to do sort of odd jobs. And his, one of his duties was to take each young associate to lunch. On the associates birthday and the club where they went to lunch was in the same building as the firm so he spent his time going up having lunch coming down that was his day what happened to him he committed suicide by jumping down the elevator (laughs) shaft then he said that he could never tell when he would have to go to San Francisco but he had a plane ticket in his desk and the time might come when he had to go, and if he had to go, he would put a note on the bulletin board. Came back to school after Thanksgiving, there was a note on the bulletin board. I have gone to San Francisco, classes are canceled for the rest of the term. <laughs> at the end of the term, I looked at my notes to see if there was anything in there about constitutional law. <laughs> and I had written down the name of one case Hammer versus Dagenhart. I don't know why it came up,
2: <laughs>
0: but that was it. <laughs> well, so after,
1: after graduating, you then you clerked for Judge Leonard Garth on the Third Circuit, and then after that, you were an assistant U.S. attorney, and later you came back to the office in New Jersey as the U.S. attorney. Uh, what are your reflections on those experiences in AUSA and uh, as
0: U.S. attorney? Well, they were both great experiences, um, being an AUSA. Gave me the uh, opportunity to go to court right away, uh, handle some important matters. I I argued dozens of cases in the Third Circuit. So that was wonderful. And it also had a collateral benefit because I spent quite a bit of time in the library uh, doing research for my briefs. And that's where I met the librarian, Martha Ann Baumgartner. So that was. Had I been a little bit younger, I would have done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've done all my research at my desk on the computer, and I never would have met her. <laughs> my life would be infinitely poorer. Anyway, <laughs> I came back as as U.S. attorney a number of years later, and that was a lot of fun, and and it was very satisfying. It was the completely unlike anything I had done before, completely unlike anything I would do after that. It did not involve a lot of A lot of reading and deep thinking and writing. It was really a a people job, uh, managing the office, keeping all the attorneys moving in the right direction. And uh, I also had the opportunity to deal with the media for the first time. And that was quite an interesting experience. Um, Before I arrived, pretty much every Sunday, there was a big article in the local paper detailing uh, inside information about investigations that the office was conducting. Of course, that was highly improper. So when I I arrived, the reporter who wrote these articles came to see me. And what he said, this is, I mean, he wasn't uh, shy about making his point. He said, look, I can make you look really good, or I can make you look really bad. And if you leak information to me, I'll make you look really good. And so I said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, and so I, I was pestered in the first, I mean, the first few weeks in the office. Every time something happened, an indictment, a guilty plea, a verdict, I, I got a whole stack of calls from reporters. And I didn't want to have to talk to all these reporters. So I hired uh, the, the first public information officer that we had to deal with. And, and so what we did was fed them all the information that they wanted about things that were on the public record but I wanted no part of that other stuff. You had a good
1: collegial relationship with the press right from the start. (laughs) Right right from the start. (laughs) Now, in between those two jobs, you worked in the Justice Department in two different positions. Uh, First, in the Solicitor General's office under Rex Lee and then then Charles Freed. You argued 12 cases. Uh, in front of the Supreme Court, uh, and then you worked in the office of legal counsel under Chuck uh, Cooper, providing legal advice to the president and, and executive branch agencies. What were those experiences like?
0: They were both very valuable, and I cherish the memory of, of both of them. It was a real thrill to argue cases in the Supreme Court. I had, as I said, I had argued quite a few in the Court of Appeals, but the Supreme Court is, is different, and uh, even though I had been in court a lot. I felt a little bit nervous during my first argument. Uh, in those days, the office was gentler than it is now, and so they always gave an attorney uh, a, a sure win case for the attorney's first argument. Mine was a sure win case. Uh, but I started to talk, and then fortunately, Justice O'Connor uh, asked me the first question. It was a really big softball question, so that was, that was good, but it was a thrill to uh, and a privilege to uh, to handle those uh, to handle those cases my first boss was rex lee rex was uh, a, a gentleman and a very impressive scholar and and a very fine man i'll give you i'll give you one example of this um, i had worked on a brief with paul bator in a case called the uh, fcc versus the league of women voters it had to do with the constitutionality of a federal statute that prohibited con- uh, editorializing by a public broadcasting station. So you know, it was a, it was a somewhat important case. The statute was one that uh, Attorney General Civiletti had refused to defend because he thought it was pretty clearly unconstitutional. But when uh, William French Smith took over as attorney general, he thought that the, the government should defend the constitutionality of any statute unless it was utterly, utterly indefensible. And so we took up that, and, and Paul uh, was determined he thought it was we could win the case. We thought we actually could win the case. So he was set to argue it. But unfortunately, he had a death in his family, like two days before the argument, and he couldn't argue the case, so it fell to me to do that. I had previously, in all my other arguments, done uh, endless preparation, a week of preparation. So all of a sudden, I have to argue this at the last minute. Uh, but Rex was very supportive, and he actually came to the argument and sat next to me at, like he was second chair in this, in this argument, which shows the kind of, uh, kind of person he was. And we got four votes, so uh, <laughs> 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 I considered it a moral victory. <laughs> Uh, even though the statue probably was unconstitutional. <laughs> and your time at OLC? Uh, OLC was, was real joy. Um, I should say that the Justice Department at that time was headed by a great man and an American statesman, uh, General Meese. I'm glad that he's, he's here with us here today. And the head of... The head of OLC was my, my friend, Chuck Cooper. I don't want to embarrass Chuck, but uh, Chuck is clearly one of the best and most dogged and most principled attorneys I've, I've ever known. So it was, a, it was a pleasure to work with him. Uh, I remember Chuck saying, We've come into my office. We've got to do some noodling on this hard issue. And this was, I had never really heard this term, noodling. (laughs) But what he meant was, we're going to think about it. We're going to use our noodle. But actually, the the meaning of noodling I was familiar with uh, had to do with these guys who stick their hands in the mud in a riverbed. And they wait for big catfish to bite their fingers. See, my, my clerk from Tennessee is shaking her head. She knows, <laughs> she knows this happens. And so then they grab, out the, they grab the big catfish. And if you see the hands of these guys, they're mangled. Anyway, that's not, I tried to think of a connection, like Chuck and I were sticking our hands into the, the muck of the law and coming, <laughs> coming up with a treasure. But anyway, it was a wonderful experience. And uh, among other things, Chuck assembled an all-star cast of young attorneys. It was a privilege to work with them. Many of them have gone on to uh, distinguished academic careers. I'm going to forget somebody, and I'll be embarrassed that I did, but Nelson Lund, Brad Clark, John Manning, um, uh, Michael Stokes Paulson, Gary Lawson. I'm I'm probably forgetting somebody, but that was quite a crew. That was quite a crew.
1: So you were then a judge on the Third Circuit for nearly 16 years before joining the Supreme Court. Uh, What was it like serving on panels with your former boss, Judge Garth, and what were some of the other things that stand out in your mind about your experience
0: in the Third Circuit? It was a great experience. When I finished the clerkship with Judge Garth, um, I thought, this is my dream job. If I could become a judge on the Third Circuit, that would be my dream job. And then, you know, with the arrogance of youth, I said, you know, I'm really ready to do that right now <laughs> the president didn't he didn't think it was appropriate to appoint me right then but anyway it was I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the clerkship and it was a little strange the first time i sat on a panel with uh with leonard garth i sort of had the feeling do i do i need to write him a bench memo about, <laughs> about the case but he you know he treated me as an equal and uh, I had wonderful colleagues, Um, I'm not going to name names because I'll omit somebody, but they really powerfully impressed on me in different ways what it means to be a good judge. When when a new federal judge is appointed, many of you may know this, some of you probably don't, the judge is sent to what's called baby judge school to, to learn a little bit about what it means to be a judge. The District courts go for, district court appointees go for. I don't know, what is it, two weeks, a week? It's a lot of stuff they need to learn. Court of Appeals judges go for a much shorter period.
2: <laughs>
0: and we don't go at all. So <laughs> either we know it all or it doesn't matter. We can, <laughs> we can make it up. But uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I learned a lot from my colleagues. They, so it, how do you learn to be a good judge? And it's not, it's not an easy thing to convey. If you try to put it down in words, it sounds like a whole bunch of platitudes. But when you see it embodied in people who've been doing the job, um, it's
1: impressive. Now, I won't follow up on the make it up part. Um, so how did you learn you were going to be nominated
0: to the Supreme Court? Oh, I remember it vividly. I had been uh, had been interviewed m- numerous times, but the president had nominated Harriet Myers, so I thought, well, my chance had passed. I was sitting at the island in my kitchen early one morning, drinking coffee, and we got a call on the phone. It was Deputy White House Counsel Bill Kelly who said the president has decided that he wants to nominate, that Harriet wants to withdraw, and the president has decided he wants to nominate me. So that was an incredible surprise. And then they told me that the president would call at a particular time, and I should wait for the call. So I, I waited for the call. But the president called, and he said, uh, I'm, I, I would like to nominate you for the Supreme Court. And I said, Mr. President, thank you very much. Uh, I am deeply, deeply honored. And then there was a pause, and he, he said, well, Do you accept? (laughs) (laughs) President Bush was not a lawyer, but he knew about offer and (laughs) acceptance. So you had obviously spoken to him
1: before. And I I know, obviously, one thing you share in common is you are both passionate uh, baseball fans. So I'm curious, did you spend more time talking about law or talking about baseball?
0: Uh, it was a bit of both you know it was a bit of both and to be honest trying to think back on the exact questions and what we discussed I can't I can't I can't quite remember but what I do vividly remember is the prelude to the interview which was which was quite something I was told to come to Washington check into a hotel and then be at a particular street corner downtown at a particular time on a Saturday morning and a black chrysler 300 would drive up flash its lights three times <laughs> and then i was supposed to get in the back seat which i did and i was whisked into the white house because they didn't want to know who the, they didn't want the media to know who was being interviewed so I had been in the White House Counsel's office before. I had not been in the president's living quarters. Um, so they brought me up to the living quarters. This is on a Saturday morning. Uh, I'm brought into a, into a room, and there's one person in the room. It's a, it's a young man uh, who's tying his sneakers. I think he was a, must have been a friend of one of the president's daughters. So then he left, and then I was there by myself. And the next thing that happened was a black Scotty ran into the room and started sniffing my feet. <laughs> that was the president's dog. And then the president came in with Harry and Myers. And he was very casually dressed Saturday morning. So <laughs> then we began talk. We talked about law for a while. But then we did switch to baseball. And he showed me the TV in the room where he would, where he would watch games so he's obviously a Texas Rangers fan, you
1: are uh, a lifelong Philadelphia Phillies fan, and boy, is it a good year to be a Phillies fan. Uh, In fact, fact, I understand that the Philly Fanatic, which is the team mascot, uh, made a special uh, guest appearance at your Supreme Court uh, welcome. Now, you grew up in Trenton, New Jersey, which is about equidistant between New York and Philadelphia, Uh, yet you chose to become a Phillies fan rather than, say, a Yankees fan. I'm curious why you did that what that choice tells us about you.
0: Well, as we sit here, wasn't it a good choice? (laughs) (laughs) This year, certainly. (laughs) The Phillies are in the World Series. The Yankees have gone home for the winter. In in 2009, I lost a bet with Justice Sotomayor when the Phillies played the Yankees, and I was really hoping that, uh, we both hoped that we could renew our bet, and I could get even, but it's not going to happen. I'll tell you a story about the Philly fanatic. He did come. uh, He came to the, we always have a welcome dinner for the justices, and so we had a very nice dinner in our dining room, which is quite an elegant room. And then after the dinner, uh, Justice Breyer opened the door, and the Philly fanatic came in. (laughs) And I have a picture in my office of the Philly fanatic hugging Clarence Thomas. (laughs) classic picture. Um, And then so I shook hands with him or whatever you do with the (laughs) the Philly Fanatic. But I noticed something different from the last time I had, I'd been in the presence of the Philly Fanatic once before at a game in Philadelphia on a hot June day. And this suit that he wears is it doesn't breathe at all, so it gets very, very hot. And when he was in Philadelphia at the game, he was very fragrant. But (laughs) when he came to visit us, he he smelled like a rose. (laughs) So why did I choose the Phillies over the Yankees? In the middle of the 1950s, when the Yankees always won and the Phillies never did, and the answer is I don't know. But there have been psychological studies, and I'm sure these are right, that voting for a losing, rooting for a, a losing team when you're growing up is good for your character.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm sure that's right. So in 1994, you even attended a uh, Phillies Fantasy. Baseball camp, a, a gift uh, from your wife, Martha Ann. Uh, that must have been a lot of fun. How was that experience, and did you get to bat against Steve Carlton?
0: Not against Steve Carlton, but it was, a, it was a great experience, as it turned out. Uh, uh, I never would have or, or uh, done this on my own, and if I, Martha Ann had not already paid for it, <laughs> I would have tried to persuade her that I really didn't want to go but she I don't like to waste money she had bought it so I went and it was really it was a wonderful experience even if you may I mean you may think it's pathetic to think of guys in their 40s and 50s pretending to be major league baseball players for a week but who cares it was <laughs> it was fun we were broken up into teams we were in the Clubhouse that the Phillies use for spring training, and we had lockers and we had uniforms, and I we played on the field that they use. I had played in, you know, as a kid, I was an I was a second baseman, and every place I played, the the infield was bumpy. There were pebbles, pebbles, and so you never, you know, you could never count on getting a true hop. But this thing was manicured. (laughs) one day, they forgot. Overnight, the the sprinkler system went off when it shouldn't. And so when we arrived, the field was saturated. Couldn't play. So what did they do? They brought in a helicopter to hover over the field and dry the field so we could play. At the end, on the last day, we played against old major leaguers. Uh, By that time, every single one of the guys like me had pulled his hamstring. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the clubhouse stunk of liniment. Nobody could <laughs> nobody could run. So I, I came up to the plate and the pitcher is wasn't well, Steve Carlton, but it was a former Phillies uh, closer, Al Holland, oh, yeah. threw very hard. And even though some years had gone by and he had put on a little bit of weight, you know, he still could throw hard. So I came up to the plate. First pitch, I couldn't even see it. I didn't know what. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know what happened. So I stepped out and I said, "You need a plan." And my plan. So I said, "You know, he's going to." And I, I'm sure he wasn't trying to throw hard. Uh, my plan is this: I, he's going to throw the ball right over the center of the plate, waist high, and so I am going to swing before he even releases the ball. (laughs) When he's in his wind up, I am gonna swing. And I hope to hit the ball. I just don't wanna strike out ignominiously. And it worked, really. I I hit the ball, it went to I I grounded out the first base, but it was it was a a moral victory. (laughs) So uh, let's move on to some talk about law a little
1: bit. So before we do that, so Abraham Lincoln once said, "quote Every nation has a central idea, from which all its minor thoughts radiate." I'm curious, in your judgment, what is America's central idea? You know, what what are your thoughts about that?
0: That's a hard question. It's a good question, but it's a hard question. And um, you know, tonight or tomorrow, I'm going to think of a, a better answer than I have right now. But uh, what what I will say is that. You know, uh, America has, has, a, has a number of different ideals. Um, uh, individual liberty is certainly one of our ideals. Equality under the law, the rule of law, um, self-government, Republican self-government, small r, Republican self-government, um, opportunity, I'm, I'm sure there, there, there are others. So. Uh, I, I'm thinking of a term or a concept that would unify these because these different strands are often in tension with each other. Uh, and I think what at our best we have aimed at is a kind of a balance among all of those. But so, I'll, I'll, you know, as I said, I'll wake up tonight or maybe tomorrow and think of a way of unifying them.
1: So originalists generally believe that the meaning of the Constitution is fixed at the time of its ratification, and the judges lack the authority to to change that meaning. Now, you have described yourself as a practical originalist. In in cases of first impression, though, you've joined many originalist opinions, you've authored uh, many yourself. Uh, When you describe yourself as a practical originalist, what do you mean by that?
0: I'm not sure it's a, it's a very descriptive term. Um, if I remember correctly, I used it in, in answer to a question that was asked to me by, by Randy Barnett. And uh, it popped into my head. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that was when I, I used the term. And, and what I had in mind was basically, was basically this, that there is a difference between originalist judging, which has immediate practical consequences and originalist scholarship, which can be very influential in the longer run, but doesn't have consequences the moment the uh, scholarship is, is published. So I'll give you two examples. One, one is stare decisis. Um, stare decisis was an important part of our legal system when the Constitution was adopted. And I think it's a fair inference that it's incorporated into the concept of the judicial power that's given to the federal courts in Article Three. And certainly, if you read, you read Federalist 78, it was very important in Hamilton's argument for judicial review. So it was important at that time. And it, it remains quite important. And it's not an inexorable command, but it, it remains important. We follow precedent most of the time. And what that can mean. Uh, is that a court will apply a rule that is settled even though the court thinks the rule is probably wrong. The court has said it is sometimes better that a rule be decided than that, that it be decided right. So that's, that's stare decisis. It's an important part of judging, but it has no place in, in any form of scholarship, in my opinion. You think of the natural sciences. Suppose there was starry decisis in the natural sciences. Suppose Einstein had said, um, you know, Newton's theory of gravity has been established for, what would it be, two centuries. Uh, And so I'm going to follow it, even though I think it's probably wrong. No, we don't want that in any of the natural sciences. And it's no more true in other fields, including legal scholarship. There's no precedent that is immune from questioning in legal scholarship. So that's one difference. Another is is compromise. If a justice is assigned to write an opinion for the court, the justice has to try to get at least four colleagues to agree. And that can be a difficult process. And what is ultimately produced may be quite different from what the author or any other member of the majority would would actually prefer. But it's important to get an opinion of the court. I, that was driven home to me during my 15 years on the Court of Appeals. Mm. We lower court judges wanted to know what was the rule that the Supreme Court had decided and that we had to apply in our cases. And when there wasn't a majority opinion, it became much more difficult sometimes Really, very almost impossible. Uh, I don't think there's anything like that in in scholarship. St- not the same kind of compromises. Most scholarship is written by one person. Then, even if, you know, even when they are co-authors, the co-authors, if they disagree about important things, can decide they're going to go separately. All
1: right. So, in your opinions and in several speeches, you have described the importance of providing robust protection for religious liberty, both here and abroad. In fact, in a recent speech in Rome, you said that religious liberty is, quote, dangerous to those who want to hold complete power. You've also pointed out the importance of countering hostility to religion and the relationship between uh, the right to free exercise and other constitutional rights, such as the right to free speech and and, and freedom of association and assembly. I was wondering if you could share your thoughts about the role of religion uh, in our society and on the court's jurisprudence
0: in this area. It's a big question. It's an important question. It's a delicate question. So, you know, in answering it, I want to make sure I don't say anything that is that will be misunderstood. Um, let me see if I can say a couple of things. Uh, I think that the the religion clauses of the First Amendment envision a society, first of all, in which Every person is free to practice any religion or no religion. They envision a society in which a religiously diverse population lives together harmoniously and productively. And they envision um, a society in which religious bodies have a good measure of autonomy. There are a lot of other things that could be said, so that that summary is is pretty inadequate. But as a general statement, I'll, I, that's what I'll that's what I'll say right now. And I could uh, we've said that history is very important in understanding the religious clauses. I think that's true. And I could cite three examples from early American history that I think illustrate some of what I was saying. The first. Um, first is the decision of the Continental Congress to grant uh, exemptions from military service for Quakers I wrote about this in my dissenting opinion in Fulton a couple of terms ago that was really a, that was really a big deal the American Revolution was often on the on the verge of losing the Continental Army had trouble keeping soldiers and so saying that a a group, and the Quakers at that time were a big group, didn't have to serve in the military, that, that meant something. And it particularly meant something if you think about the personal situation of the members of the Continental Congress. Um, if the war had been lost, they would have been regarded as traitors and potentially treated as such by the, the British. And yet, they thought it was important enough to grant those exemptions to the Quakers. So, that's the first example. The second is what Washington did after he was elected. And he made a point of reaching out to all the religious groups in the country. He wrote a very famous letter that many of you have probably seen to the, the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. And I can't, I wish I could quote it, but the thrust of it was that uh, we are not just going to tolerate all religions. We um, We are going to embrace them. And all that we ask of all Americans is that they be good citizens. And then the third is what happened when the Vatican was preparing to name the first Catholic bishop in the United States. The papal nuncio in Paris asked Benjamin Franklin for the recommendation of the Congress and Franklin said, "Well, the Congress of the United States has no power over churches or religious bodies." Now, if you if you know European history, this is a this was a big thing because throughout European history, there had been constant battles between popes and emperors and kings about who was going to appoint the bishops in the territory uh, in question, but. Franklin's answer was, we're going to have none of that in the United States. Churches here are going to be autonomous.
1: So while we're talking about the First Amendment, you have spoken about the importance of free speech in civil discourse. And I pointed out that the First Amendment is not designed, was designed to protect unpopular speech, because popular speech doesn't need uh, any kind of protection. Uh, some of your opinions reflect that. Your majority opinion in Mattel versus Tam. Your dissent in the Walker case, that was a Texas license plate case. Even on the Third Circuit, your majority opinion in the Sachs case. What are your thoughts about the state of free speech on college and
0: law school campuses? Well, based on what I have read and what has been uh, told to me by students, it's pretty abysmal. And it's disgraceful. And it's really dangerous for our future as a united democratic country. Uh, We depend on freedom freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is essential. Colleges and universities should be setting the example And law schools should be setting the example for the university, because our adversary system is based on the principle that the best way to get at the truth is to have a strong presentation of opposing views. So law students should be free to speak their minds without worrying about the consequences. And they should have their ideas tested uh, in, uh, in rational, in rational debate, and if law schools are not doing that, and according to these uh, reports, some of them are not doing that, then they are really uh, not carrying out their responsibility.
1: Mm. So when it comes to the First Amendment free speeches, though you have occasionally struck out on your own or, or virtually alone and indicated that you would have upheld certain laws that punished or regulated particular kinds of speech, cases like the U.S. versus Stevens case, in which the court struck down a federal law that criminalized the production of, of so-called animal crush videos; Snyder versus Phelps, in which the court said that the First Amendment protected the rights of members of the Westboro Baptist Church uh, to protest and say some rather vile things at the uh, at the funerals of soldiers who had been killed in action; United States versus Alvarez, in which the court struck down a federal statute making it a crime uh, to make a false statement about having received military honors. Uh, and Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association, which was a case involving uh, parental consent laws for kids with violent uh, video games. Those come to mind. Can you explain the nature of your disagreement with your colleagues in the majority in those cases and where you would draw the line between protected and unprotected speech?
0: Well, I think we agree on what's most important, and that is that free speech is vitally important. To our country and to our society, and the real test, as as Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, is whether we're willing to protect the speech that we hate. It's easy to protect the speech that we love, but when it comes to the speech that we hate or the speech that we fear, that's where we're really tested. That's the most important thing. And so, most of the the, the general rule, with only a f- minor with, with only exceptions for exceptional situations is that any speech involving public issues, involving politics, government, history, economics, uh, law, uh, science, religion, philosophy, the arts, anything of that level of importance, the general rule has to be the government has, has to stay out. But it's also Important to keep in mind what the First Amendment says. And it does not protect the right of everybody to say anything that they want at any time, at any place, and in any way. Uh, it protects the freedom of speech. It's like other provisions of the Bill of Rights, it refers to, picks up a pre existing right, a right that had some dimension before the Bill of Rights. Uh, was adopted. And from the very beginning of our country, it has been, our legal system has recognized that there are categories of speech that are not protected by the freedom of speech, extortionate threats, uh, fraud, uh, defamation, uh, shouting fire in a crowded theater. Uh, There are established exceptions. I mean, I won't go through all of those cases, but in all of I thought long and hard about every single one of them. And in all of those, I thought that the speech in question fell within a an established exception. The Westboro Baptist case seemed to me uh, a prime example of the, the, the tort of the intentional, intentional infliction of emotional distress. The group that protested outside, the, this group uh, went to funerals of soldiers who were tragically killed. Uh, They stood outside the church, and they chanted things like, your son, your brother, your husband, your friend is burning in hell because he served in the US military. When they did that, the rest of the country was open to them. They could have gone anyplace else and delivered the same message. Or they could have waited until the funeral was over, and then Sat outside the, uh, stood outside the empty church and delivered the same message. But they didn't do that, and they didn't do it. They chose the exact circumstances that were calculated to injure, bereaving, uh, mourning relatives. And I thought that was the classic example of 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 that tort. So these cases, it seemed to me,
1: pose a very striking contrast to Citizens United, which was a five to four decision. Now, I'm not questioning the good faith of your colleagues. I know that you aren't either. Uh, but, but how is it that some of the justices seem more willing to provide greater protection to an animal crush video than to a video criticizing a candidate for political
0: office? Well, um, I, I'll reiterate. I wouldn't. I don't question the the good faith of the dissenters in Citizens United. And Justice Stevens wrote a, a a lengthy opinion in setting out their view. Everybody can read that. They can read Justice Kennedy's opinion for the court, and they can decide which one they think is right. Um, I will say this about about Citizens United. Citizens United was really a narrow decision. It had to do Uh, it, it, It held that a little corporation, Citizens United, had the right to talk about the qualifications of a candidate for high public office in the period shortly before the election. That goes to the very core of what the First Amendment protects. The main popular criticism of the decision that you hear is that the first? The freedom of speech applies to human beings. It doesn't apply to corporations. Uh, you, to this day, I think you can get bumper stickers that make the point. Uh, and I think to ordinary people, it, it has immediate appeal. That's why, that's why it's used. But if you think about it, think about what it would mean. Where do we get all of our news? Where do we get all of our commentary on the news? The uh, cable news networks are all owned by corporations. CNN, Fox, MSNBC, the broadcast networks owned by corporations. Major newspapers, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, you can go down the list, are all owned by corporations. Popular entertainment is all provided by corporations. If corporations did not have free speech rights and the government could regulate all of this as it, as it wished, Wow, who who wants that, that regime? Citizens United has become, I think, kind of a lot. Most people don't know exactly what was held. And it has instead become kind of a lightning rod for everything that a lot of people don't like about campaign finance and about the way campaigns are conducted. And certainly, there's a lot to dislike about the way campaigns are conducted. But all of that is not cannot be attributable to Citizens United. So on a somewhat related topic,
1: you've already made reference to the fact that the legal profession is adversarial in nature. Uh, The best traditions of the bar, you're supposed to represent unpopular clients as long as you have a viable legal argument. Today, though, that appears to be changing, and lawyers are often attacked for representing unpopular clients, especially if their clients are people of faith or they represent conservative causes. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this.
0: It's very unfortunate. Uh, I think some law firms' dedication to that principle that you mentioned, that um, it it is one of the best traditions of the bar to provide representation for unpopular people and unpopular causes, uh, wins now sort of one-sided approval in a lot of quarters. And I think that's to be deplored. Uh, On the other hand, there are still attorneys who Are dedicated to that principle and they will continue to represent those clients even though they have to pay a personal price and i think the bar should applaud those attorneys
1: so i want to talk a little bit about administrative agencies they've they've often been referred to as a fourth branch of government the court has recently taken a less deferential view towards administrative agencies curb long-standing deference doctrines in kaiser versus wilkie A majority of the justices, including yourself, have suggested that perhaps it's time to revive the so-called non-delegation doctrine. And the courts invoked the major questions doctrine in a number of cases last year. So in 2015, in Department of Transportation versus Association of American Railroads, you wrote a concurring opinion in which you stated the following. Liberty requires accountability. When citizens cannot readily identify the source of legislation or regulation that affects their lives, government officials can wield power without owning up to the consequences. And you continued. The principle that Congress cannot delegate away its vested power exists to protect liberty. Our constitution by careful design prescribes a process for making law, and within that process there are many accountability checkpoints. It would dash the whole scheme if Congress could give its power away to any entity that is not constrained by those checkpoints. The Constitution's deliberative process was viewed by the framers as a valuable feature, not something to be lamented and evaded. Uh, so what do you mean by that? And what is? how do you approach uh, cases involving challenges to administrative agencies?
0: A, a lot of very complicated and technical issues arise in administrative law, and uh, I, I don't want to get into, you know, sure. I, I think you we'd be here till midnight if I tried to get into those. Uh, but I, let me go back to the, something you said earlier about reading the Constitution. I do think that it, it's helpful in addressing these issues to keep in mind what the Constitution says. I'm not questioning the existence of administrative agencies or uh, denigrating their work. But it's important to keep in mind what the Constitution says. It explains how laws are supposed to be made. They are supposed to be passed by both houses of Congress and signed by the president unless the president's veto is overridden. And it says who's supposed to be interpreting the laws, and that's the judicial power in Article 3. It's very simplistic. I know that doesn't answer the hard questions, but I do think it's what I, I think I was saying in that in that little concurrence is let's keep this in mind as we deal with these complicated issues. Let's not get lost uh, in the weeds and keep in mind what we're what the the framework of the Constitution and and ask ourselves whether on any particular point we've departed too far from it.
1: Mm. So I'd like to now focus for a moment on textualism, which is sort of like a Uh, counterpart to originalism in statutory cases. So in Bostock versus Clayton County, the court interpreted Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination because of sex, to prohibit not only gender discrimination, but also discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. In your dissent, in which you criticized Justice Gorsuch's majority opinion, you wrote the following. The court attempts to pass off its decision as the inevitable product of the textualist school of statutory interpretation championed by our late colleague, Justice Scalia, but no one should be fooled. The court's opinion is like a pirate ship. It sails under a textualist flag but what it actually represents is a theory of statutory interpretation that Justice Scalia excoriated, the theory that courts should update old statutes so that they better reflect the current values of society. Can you explain a little bit more about your disagreement with the majority and about how to properly think about textualism when it comes to discerning the meaning of statutes and whether you should incorporate things like legislative history, political history, social history
0: in in determining that interpretation. Well, I was sort of uh, channeling Nino when I wrote that. I, <laughs> I thought that the, I thought he liked the pirate ship line.
2: <laughs> he
0: could have done better, but it was my uh, homage to him. But my uh, uh, theory of textualism is the one that he championed, as I understand it. There are those who will disagree. But I have puzzled over this. and. Mm-hmm. I think that my understanding is what he was getting at. I wish he were still with us. I wish he had been around for Bostock. I think he would have explained it all to us in ways that we could easily understand, And but he wasn't. So uh, we have to do our best without him. So it's a complicated subject. Let me say a couple of things. The first is I think it's important to keep in mind what he was battling when he took this on. By the late 1970s and the early 1980s, statutory interpretation had gotten way out of hand. Uh, Congressional intent, as illustrated by legislative history, had gone a long way toward supplanting consideration of the actual words of the statute. There was even a case from that era when the Supreme Court said this, and I'm I'm not exaggerating. The Court said, the legislative history is ambiguous. And therefore, we will look to the text of the statute. So <laughs> it was, it was re, the, the you know the priority was reversed, um, and that's what Nino faced. Um, legislative history was seen as enabling judges to reach whatever policy results they preferred. Judge uh, uh, J- Judge Lalaventhal of the um, of the D.C. Circuit famously said that looking at legislative history was like entering a cocktail party and looking over the room to find your friends. And uh, that was the idea. A judge who looked at the legislative history would look around to see uh, friendly things in the legislative history. The judge would find them and would use them to, uh, as support for the judge's interpretation. Legislative history was also being manipulated by Congress. Congress was paying attention to what the court was doing. And since the court was putting a lot of weight on legislative history, members of Congress spurred on, I'm sure by interest groups, uh, were trying to manufacture legislative history to support propositions that they couldn't actually get into the, into the bill. So uh, that's what Nino was fighting. He was, I think, quite successful in changing the direction. Uh, that's the first point. The second is that, and, and you know, this, this deserves a lot more time than I'm going to be able to give to it, although I think you want to tolerate. But I think that Nino recognized that the theory of the judicial role in interpreting statutes that he adopted, uh, that he, uh, he accepted, and that was, that was uh, demanded, uh, and under, d- demanded some concept of intent of congressional intent. Uh, the traditional theory has been that the judge in the statutory case is the faithful agent of the legislative body. And an, an agent has to be uh, has to be mindful of, has to heed the intent of the principal. So if you accept that theory, I don't you can't get away from some concept of intent. Or what Nino's way of dealing with that. was to say that he accepted a sort of an objectified intent. That was how he described it. And this was the intent that you could discern from the text of the statute and the broader context. And I think that includes, in a case like Bostock, what Congress had, had shown that it thought about this issue in all sorts of other legislation that it had passed that remained in force at that, at that time. The third point uh, is that Nino excluded from consideration legislative history. And I think he did this heavily for prophylactic reasons. Uh, I think that, in his view, he had seen all these abuses. And in his view, legislative history was to, a judge like an alcoholic beverage is to an alcoholic. And the judge couldn't just take one sip of legislative history because then the judge would get drunk on legislative history. He had seen that. Uh, So that's what I will say on that.
1: So the due process clause of the 14th Amendment has been a source of considerable controversy on the court For a long time. It was cited uh, as the source for recognizing a constitutional right to abortion in Roe versus Wade uh, and to same-sex marriage in Obergefell versus Hodges. Uh, In your dissent in Obergefell, you, you stated the following, I do not doubt that my colleagues in the majority sincerely see in the Constitution a vision of liberty that happens to coincide with their own, but this sincerity is cause for concern, not comfort. What it evidences is the deep and perhaps irremedial irremediable corruption of our legal cultures conception of constitutional interpretation. Can you explain the controversy surrounding substantive due process and what role uh, do you think the court should play in terms of analyzing and recognizing liberty interests?
0: Uh, In, in uh, one of my opinions last term, I, I wrote that, uh, Lincoln once said that all Americans believe in liberty, but they don't agree on what liberty means. Liberty means very different things to different people. It means one thing to, let's say, a libertarian. It means something very different to a socialist. Uh, The Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment uh, protects uh, liberty from deprivation without, without due process of law. There's the issue about whether the work that the court has uh, put, uh, the, the, that the, the the court's due process uh, jurisprudence about sub- protecting substantive rights, really belongs in the privileges or immunities clause. But uh, that's that's a, a, another subject. But as to the interpretation of of liberty. Uh, because the, the term means different things to different people, uh, it's important to have some structure. It's important to have some discipline. It's important to have a standard that doesn't just turn judges loose to say that the Constitution protects any aspect of liberty that I personally feel is really, really important. And what the court had said, what we have said, is that, the, that The liberty protected by the due process clause uh, consists of those rights that have deep roots in our history and our tradition. And that provides a, a standard that keeps this jurisprudence from getting out of control. So a couple of
1: your colleagues stated recently that the court has strayed too far from public sentiment on several current issues and that this threatens the court's legitimacy as an apolitical institution you recently stated that quote saying or implying that the court is becoming an illegitimate institution or questioning our integrity crosses an important line so how do you respond to those who say that the court has become a nakedly partisan institution and what is the danger of crossing that line
0: Oh, everybody in this country is free to disagree with our decisions. There's no question about that. Everybody is free to criticize our reasoning and to do it in strong terms, and that certainly uh, is done uh, in the media and uh, in uh, the writings of, uh, of law professors and in on social media and uh, in uh, in other fora. There's no question about all of that. Uh, but to say that the court is exhibiting a lack of integrity is something quite different that goes to character it goes not not to the agreement or disagreement not to a disagreement with the result or the reasoning it goes to character and uh, somebody also cro- you someone also crosses an important line when the, when they say that uh, the court is acting in a way that is that is illegitimate. I don't think anybody in a position of authority should make that claim lightly. That's not that's not just ordinary criticism. That is something uh, that is uh, something very different.
2: Yeah.
1: So along those same lines, in a speech you gave a couple of years ago, you criticized a group of U.S. senators uh, for filing a brief that you labeled, quote, an affront to the Constitution. And to the rule of law, in which they said that the Supreme Court was not well, and if the court didn't mend its ways, it might have to be, quote unquote, restructured. Uh, there have been recent calls, as you know, to increase the number of justices uh, on the Supreme Court, euphemistically referred to as court packing. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on sort of these reform efforts that you'd be willing to share with us.
0: Well, the size of the court is not specified by the Constitution. It has varied from time to time. It's been nine now for a long time. But uh, the size is something for Congress to decide. And therefore, it's it's an issue for all citizens, not for Supreme Court justices any more than anybody else. Uh, let me say two other things. First, um, I'll ask a question. I'll ask a rhetorical question. If Congress were to change the size of the court. We were talking about the perception of legitimacy, so this goes in that direction. If Congress were to change the size of the court and the public perceived that the reason for changing the size of the court was to influence decisions in future cases that Congress anticipated the court might be deciding, at some point in the foreseeable future, what would that do to the public perception of our independence and our legitimacy? It's a question for citizens, so I I leave it there. The second is um, more interesting actually to me, and that is what would all of us do if we were the delegates to a new constitutional convention and we were gonna decide how big the Supreme Court should be? I think we ought to start by saying, well, it's got to be an odd number. We don't want ties. I've been on the court at a time when there were, when we had eight. And I don't think there's anything good about it. Um, it shouldn't be too big, because if a court gets too big, it can't function as a, it can't work, the justices can't work together. Uh, you could see this. I saw this starting to happen on, on the Third Circuit when we had an on bank and i think we were up to 13 judges became somewhat unwieldy it also shouldn't be too small uh, because then each new justice uh, each new uh, each substitution of a justice has a can potentially has an enormous effect on uh, on the composition of the court and it's beneficial to have uh, the expression of a variety of views so i think personally you know here again I have no special status in talking about this nine is a good number somewhere in a middle range some of the, some state Supreme courts have seven uh, they find that workable something in sort of a middle range would be a good number
1: so one of the most remarkable features about the court in an age of incessant leaks uh, is the confidentiality that long covered its internal deliberations unfortunately, Uh, That changed this last term with the horrific and completely unprecedented leak of your draft majority opinion in Dobbs Uh, How has the leak affected the court?
0: it was a grave betrayal of trust by somebody and it uh, was a shock because Nothing like that had happened in the past so it certainly changed the atmosphere at the court for the remainder of, of last term. The leak also made those of us who were thought to be in the majority in support of overruling Roe and Casey targets for assassination because it gave people a rational reason to think they could prevent that from happening by killing one of us. And we know that a, a man has been charged with attempting to kill Justice Kavanaugh. It's a pending case, so I won't say anything more about that. Uh, But um, that was last term. Um, Now we're we're in a new term. I think that all of us want to, all of the justices, and I think the people who work in the building, we have a wonderful staff, um, I'll add that, want things to get back to normal. The way they were before all this last term, before COVID, get back to normal to the greatest degree possible. And uh, that's what we hope will happen. And I think everybody is working on that. You know, during my 16 years on the court, the justices have always gotten along very well on a personal level. I think the public, when they read our opinions, probably misses that. Um, We sometimes, you can see by reading those opinions, we sometimes disagree pretty passionately about the law and we have not in recent years been all that restrained about the terms in which we express our our disagreement I, I'm as guilty as others probably on this on this score but um, none of that is personal and that is something that I think I wish the public understood. Yeah, I
1: know you have to try to get along. with a very prominent lawyer who's here in the audience. I'm going to steal his line. He said that uh, you may be life-tenured, but I'm sure at times it seems like a life sentence. <laughs> and I'm sure, that's, I'm sure that's true. So one final, one final question. Uh, so in a speech a number of years ago at the National Constitution Center, you said, quote, constitutional rights, the precious freedoms that are protected by the Bill of Rights are always fragile. They are always threatened. The judiciary and others in government have a role to play in protecting those rights. And then you quoted a great jurist, Learned Hand, who once wrote, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court can save it. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit uh, on that and your thoughts on the the, 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 the precious values in our Constitution and its
0: fragility. Well, the uh, enforcement of rights almost always has costs. And so there will be those in government who want to, uh, rest- from time to time, want to, res- want to restrict rights. Federal-, federal governments, state governments, local governments. And so what happens when they try to do that? Who is going to be there to try to stop this from happening? Well, we hope the courts will do that. Most of the time, the courts do that. But in the end, the judiciary is the weakest of the three branches. If it came down to a bare knuckles fight between the judiciary and either the executive or Congress, uh, there's no doubt who would lose. Uh, Plus, judges are human beings. So if the society comes to the comes to the point of thinking this particular right is not very important, and in fact protecting it actually is a bad thing, it has bad consequences, we don't like it anymore, uh, the judges are, are human beings. So they will, that, that popular view over time will eventually uh, affect the thinking of judges and they will uh, be less. Uh, enthusiastic and less vigilant about enforcing those rights. So Hand was absolutely correct. Liberty uh, has to live in the lives of, in in the hearts of ordinary citizens. And if it dies there, then it will
1: die out. Well, Justice Alito, this has really been been terrific. Um, It's been a real pleasure. Uh, I want to invite up uh, to the stage uh, Heritage's President Dr. Kevin Roberts for a special presentation.
3: Justice Alito, it's an honor to have you here at Heritage to deliver what was going to be a lecture, but I think was even better a conversation. And hats off to you, John Malcolm, for a great job moderating it. Round of applause for John, please. (laughs) Thanks for your comments, not just about the law, but about baseball. Being an Atlanta Braves fan, I'm suffering from your Phillies win, but congratulations. All kidding aside, it's my privilege to present you with a few tokens of our esteem to mark the occasion. First, as you can't see here, but some of the audience can see on the other side of the podium, we have a two-volume set of Joseph Story's commentaries on the Constitution. They're awfully good for bicep curls. (laughs) But if you don't want to do that, you might want to give them to some of your colleagues and encourage them to read them, (laughs) coming from this historian. If that is too much, we also have an abridged version and one volume with a foreword by our very own Attorney General, Ed Meese. That's less good for bicep curls, but easier to read. Most important, I'd like to give you the highest legal award that we present at the Heritage Foundation, our Defender of the Constitution Award, which I think everyone here will agree you certainly deserve. Indeed, I can think of no more worthy recipient. But Justice Alito, congratulations.
0: Thank you.